Ladies and gentlemen, hello and good evening, and welcome to another episode of Tough Talk, a special edition on Tough Talk here on Monday, January the 4th. The reason, of course, we have this special night is because tomorrow night is maybe the biggest night in 2021 already, five days in, as we head to see two of the biggest Senate runoffs in Georgia history that will decide the state and the balance of the United States Senate. Obviously, of course, the special election, which we knew was going to be here between incumbent Senator Kelly Leffler and Raphael Warnock, but also the big surprise going into tonight, we have another runoff, of course. John Ossoff did drag incumbent David Perdue into a runoff by only a couple of thousand votes. So we have two runoffs. If Democrats win both, they will gain control of the Senate thanks to the tiebreaker by new Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. With me tonight is election Twitter and maybe Twitter in general, most well-known Georgia analysis when it comes to politics. Uh, he is maybe one of the biggest rising stars in the analysis world. He has written for Decision Desk and Crystal Ball, Niles Francis. Niles, I want to thank you for coming on tonight. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate that. It's a lot going on in Georgia, and I'm glad to talk about it here with you guys. Yeah. So uh, we're going to start with maybe just a bit of a benchmark question here. So obviously, uh, Georgia, which is the, the shift in the Atlanta suburbs, uh, has become a such a highly polarized and a highly contested state, uh, clear by the about 10, 000, only about 10,000 votes that Joe Biden won by in November. Uh, so there's kind of this, these benchmarks that parties need to make to you know get a victory out there. So what do you think the benchmarks both parties what do you think are the benchmarks that both parties need to make on election day to, to get their candidates to victory? Well, for Republicans, it's quite simple. They need to drive up rural turnout. That's why you see President Trump going up to um, Northwest Georgia tonight, which I will be watching right after we log off of here. So um, that's why you have Republicans are spending a lot of time trying to um, focus on you know their rural turnout operation because they they are well aware of the democrats early vote advantage they know that black voters are voting early in higher numbers than they did in november they know that so that's why they're banking on this high election day turnout to offset that will it work we'll find out tomorrow but um one could also one also has to wonder why senator leffler um why senator leffler announced today that she would um that she would object to the electoral college results. Does that have anything to do with wanting to drive up rural turnout, or are they concerned that they're not getting the turnout that they that they need? So, you know, a lot of questions being raised there. Yeah, of course. And I, if we're going to move on here, I think a thing that's kind of been under discussed, in my opinion, has been uh, the amount of money that we've seen spent in this race, just since we headed to the runoff period alone. I think I saw a figure today of that uh, combined between the two races, it is up to nearly $840 million. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to bring this into two-parter. Uh, that type of money being spent uh, in any race is unreal. The fact that we're seeing at least $420 million on average spent in a single race is unreal. Uh, do you think that's good? You think it's, Do you think this is a good thing personally for American politics that we're like that in this a two-month period, we're seeing that amount of money be spent in a singular state on two singular races. Well, first, let me start by showing you this. These are all of the mailers that I have received, <laughs> that I have received over the last few months. So, I'm th yeah, the money is ridiculous. Like, th these are 
pretty much all the mailers that I've saved over the last few, I, I threw some of them away because they were the same ones. But um, yeah, these are just some of the mailers that I've that I've received over the last few months. And like, you know, you can't turn on a TV on local television here in Georgia. You cannot turn on a TV without seeing a campaign ad. It's crazy. Like ad after ad after ad is a, TV, is a campaign ad from either the campaigns or outside groups. So it's ridiculous. It really is. Like it, in, in one way I under, um, I understand why these races are bringing in a lot of money because like, you know, it's control of the Senate on the line here. Like it's not every day that control of the Senate hinges on one state. On the other hand, like, I don't think it should cost nearly a billion dollars in one state for two, for two Senate races. So I kind of see both sides of the equation there. Yeah. And then maybe to cut, you, you mentioned almost a billion dollars, but it feels like as uh, with, without really that many regulations on outside spending in American politics right now, uh, do you think it's possible in this next decade, we're in a new decade now, the 2020s, uh, do you think it's possible that within the 2020s, we could see a the first billion dollar non-presidential race? I mean, the cost of Senate races just keeps going up and up every cycle. Like um, Drew mentioned this a few weeks ago, but about $90 million was spent on the 2012 Senate race in Massachusetts between... Um, Scott Brown and some woman named Elizabeth Warren. Never heard of her. <laughs> but anyway, um, we've already well surpassed $90 million in both of these Georgia races. Like we're nearing a billion dollars. So the races here in Georgia are already setting records for the most expensive Senate races in history. And like, you know, at the time, the 2012 Senate race in Massachusetts was the most expensive Senate race in history. We've well surpassed that now. <laughs> so it just seems like the cost of these down ballot races just keeps going up and up every, every cycle. Like we saw, um, we saw in the 2000, um, in, in the last year's Senate race in South Carolina, Jamie Harrison raised $57 million in one quarter. Um, Ossoff and Warnock have combined raised like four times that in a single quarter. So it's ridiculous the amount of money being spent in these races. Like on one, like, like it's another, you know, it's another situation where I see both sides of the, of the equation. Like on one hand, it's good that more people are taking interest to down ballot races and how important they are. But on the other, like these races, the amount of spending in these races is just ridiculous. <laughs> and, and I mean, this, there's time in talking about just like uh, when it comes to the amount of money that's being spent in some of these races, that it kind of there's there's always discussion. Uh, have you ever taken a political science class when it relates to campaigns? If any of you, if any of our listeners have been in college, if they've ever taken a political science campaign uh, class that's kind of focused on campaigns, there's kind of this idea sometimes that there's kind of just a leveling effect when it comes to money spent, money raised that. It can only do so much, uh, but when it comes down to such an important race like this, do you do you think that's something that actually happens, or do you think that, you know, spending money no matter what how much it is, you know, will will in the end likely help you out? Well, this is a runoff election, and in runoff elections, most voters tend to have already made up their minds. So I don't like you know runoffs. The way runoffs work, Georgia is really the only state is, is the only state that has general election runoffs. Um, runoffs are usually turnout competitions, like whichever party can get a better job, can do a better job of turning out their base will be the party that wins the runoff. Um, I think that's why we're seeing all these money, all this money being spent by both parties. Like they know that we need to turn out our voters. If we don't turn out our voters, if we don't turn out our voters, we're not going to win. So that's probably why you're seeing all of these, all the money being spent in these races. So, but, um, I don't really think it 
changes votes, the money being, I don't think it changes votes. I don't think it, you know, someone's going to, um, you know, switch their vote based off of like a campaign ad that they saw. I don't think they're going to do that. I think it's more like, you know, it just turns out, it just turns out your voters. It motiv it, motiv it motivates the party base. That's really all, all, all it is to it. Yeah. Okay. So to keep it on turning a little bit, what, what are the areas that you think we should be looking for that could have huge turnout, especially for a runoff? We already know that uh, this turnout, turnout wise in this runoff is going to uh, theoretically destroy uh, previous Georgia numbers when it comes to runoffs. Uh, but where do you think areas for wise for both parties are where we're going to probably see some of the most turnout? Uh, obviously, I know mostly we're going to think Atlanta and the Northeast uh, probably going to see some of the most turnouts for Democrats and Republicans respectively. But I want to kind of want to hear what you think. And if there might be any area that might surprise us to see how high a turnout uh, turnout could be. Well, if you, you know, if most of you have been keeping track of the early voting numbers the way I have, you'll know that um, some counties down in southwest Georgia, some majority, some, some majority African-American counties down in southwest Georgia are seeing some pretty good turnout numbers compared to the November general election. And that's partly why um, you're, you're seeing in a higher share of the black of the black uh, you know, African-Americans are making up a higher share of the electorate so far than they did in November. Like in, in November total, um, the Af African-Americans made up like 27% of the electorate. Right now, that number is hanging at around 30%. So that's a 3% increase. And in a state where the presidential election was decided by like 12,000 votes, numbers like that, an increase like that can make a huge difference either way. So I think that's one area that I would keep an eye on tomorrow is Southwest Georgia. That's where you have a lot of majority rural, majority black counties. And those counties are seeing some pretty interesting turnout numbers compared to November. So it's worth keeping an eye on. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, uh, we that, I believe those Southeastern counties, those are mostly being Sanford Bishops district. If I, if I am correct in that, I believe those are mostly being Sanford Bishops. Uh, Sanford yes. District. Okay. Yeah, all right. And, you know, obviously the African-American turnout and not just uh, in those areas, but in Atlanta and in Georgia, uh, it's been such a huge part of what why Georgia is now suddenly a competitive state after two decades of being a blood red GOP state. Uh, it's why it's turned back competitive uh, as as a young, very, very much into it, African-American uh, male. Uh, how much effect do you think has that shift in and growth in numbers in how uh, blacks have voted in Afri in uh, Georgia, excuse me, uh, how much do you think that shift has contributed to this ability to suddenly become competitive for Democrats again? And how much do you think it could be worthwhile to say, this isn't just going to be a toss-up state, this is going to be a blue state, and that's because of the backs of the high number of votes we're seeing from uh, African-American voters? Well, right now, I'd say that Georgia is firmly a purple state. Like, <laughs> it's probably one of the most competitive states on the map at the moment. Like, it was only decided by 12,000 votes in the presidential election. That's pretty close. <laughs> but um, in terms of African-Americans, like, a lot of it stems from African-Americans who, who were not previously registered to vote. Registering to vote, that's part of what it is. And then, uh, and, and then another part could be... Um, younger African-Americans, like first-time voters, like, you know, African-American first-time voters, such as myself, registering to vote for the first time and voting for the first time. So it's, it's a lot of interesting factors that play here. Um, 
you can say what you want about uh, former gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams, but I think her organization has done a pretty great job of registering African-American voters, like bringing new voters to the polls and making sure that younger African-Americans are aware of the stakes in these elections. Um, you, you can disagree with her on, on politics all you want, but I think her, um, I think her organization has done a really great job of increasing African-American turnout and minority turnout across the board, especially among voters who were not previously registered to vote or who had not voted before. So I think she, I think her organization has done a great job of finding new voters out there. And I, I this is a question we got in the chat here, but I just wanted to ask you, is there any uh, uh, Latino voters have be, kind of become this huge topic of discussion or could we see any effect from Hispanic or Latino voters really uh, in, do you think that could cause any effect in Georgia? I'm not. I'm not a big knowledge of Georgian uh, demographics, <laughs> population-wise. I'm a northern boy. Uh, Georgia is not my specialty. But uh, are there are there any like Latino basins in Atlanta that maybe could continue to see some some of the shifts that we saw really across the nation in majority Latino hubs where they were still maybe heavily Democratic, but we saw this two, three, four, five percent shift towards Republicans. Are, are there really any basins like that in Georgia? or really mainly around the Atlanta area that maybe we should pay attention to? Well, unlike Florida, where they're pretty much all concentrated in Miami-Dade County, um, in Georgia, I'd say they're pretty, they're scattered all over the place here in Georgia. But um, one county that has a pretty decent Hispanic population in Georgia is um, Hall County. Hall County is in North Northeast Georgia. Um, most of it is in Doug Collins' former district. Um, it it has a um, there are several meat packing plants in Hall County, but the, but the county is pretty solidly red. So um, the only thing I'm going to be watching there is really turnout, like not any shifts among um, Hispanic voters. But um, really, there the only thing I'm going to be watching is turnout because Republicans. That's one of the largest Repu solidly Republican counties in the state, Hall County. So. Um, I'd keep an eye on that tomorrow, just in terms of turnout, because Republicans, that's one of the areas where they will need high turnout if they want to win tomorrow. Yeah. And I mean, like we've kind of said, uh, Elections Daily as an organization has made this argument when we made our ratings. Uh, many other analysis, uh, people analysis have made this idea that it really does all come down to turnout in this race. And uh, you've mentioned, of course, the president of the United States uh, will be there in northeast Georgia tonight. He will be holding a rally. Uh, what some Republicans, I'm sure, are hoping will drive up turnout. Uh, others are concerned uh, that he will continue to spew the rhetoric that he has on Twitter uh, of rigged elections and rigged ballots. Obviously, again, uh, major falsehoods about the security of our elections. Uh, do you do you think that there, you know, the president's rhetoric? Do you think has that had an impact on turnout at all, in your opinion, or do you think this is kind of just something that people will keep in the back of their minds, but they're still just going to go out there and vote? because that's what they normally do. Well, we're really not going to know if it had an impact on turnout until tomorrow, because we know that most of his supporters are going to vote on election day. Um, you know, he spent the entire campaign railing against mail-in ballots, and we know that Trump supporters don't trust those. So we know that most of those voters are going to be voting on election day. It's just a matter of how many. In terms of his rhetoric, his rhetoric, his rhetoric has been pretty interesting for most for those of you who have been watching it. Like the entire time he has been saying that the election is rigged in Georgia, but we need you to vote again in these runoffs. So like it's kind of a, um, like, you know, you 
you really can't say both of those things at the same <laughs> time, you know, like either the election is rigged or it's not like, you know, you can't tell, it really doesn't make any sense to tell your supporters to go vote again in an election that's rigged, if you understand what I'm trying to say. Yes. So um, we'll be interesting to see what his rhetoric is like at this rally tonight. My hunch tells me that it will be all over the place. <laughs> so we'll see what happens. But um, I think we're going to, I'm going to be watching how much time he spends talking about Purdue and Leffler as opposed to what most of us expect he'll be doing, railing against Brian Kemp, Brad Raffensperger, elections, voting systems, things like that. So yeah, that'll be interesting to see. How much time does he spend talking about the candidates and not airing his own grievances? Yeah, you know what I mean? And that's interesting that you brought up. And uh, this is going to be, I think, a really interesting rally because I feel like it's incredibly likely that we are going to see an appearance from uh, arguably the GOP's most controversial congresswoman, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. It's oh, yeah, it's her, her district. district. <laughs> her district. So, yeah, she's likely to make an appearance there tonight. I believe it would be her first official appearance for the president, if I'm not mistaken on that. I believe that would be her first actual appearance with the president on stage. Yeah, she's attended Trump rallies before, but I don't believe she's ever spoken at any. I, I haven't looked at the lineup for this um, rally tonight, but this is in her district. Dalton is the heart of <laughs> the heart of her district. So, um, yeah, she'll probably be um, have a pretty decent presence at that rally tonight, I would expect. Yeah, I mean, you you've, I mean, do you think the, the question about the conspiracy theories and I guess we're going to kind of delve into that. I want your opinion on this, the conspiracy theories. Uh, you know, what, how she's kind of driven them. She's been a huge part of the idea. She won, she wore, when she was forced to wear one, a Trump one mask, uh, which is way off the beaten path at this point, in my opinion. Uh, you know, the, do you think that rhetoric like that is, is helping or hurting, you know, Republicans in the end? Because sure. I, I love to see it when we, we have these boosted, you know, red turnouts in Northeastern Georgia and northwestern Georgia. I love it. But we can't win unless we win at least in some of those population barriers, especially in uh, Gwinnett and Fulton. Uh, do you think, you know, having someone like Margie Taylor Green up there and, you know, continuing to kind of build on this rhetoric, do you think that we could even see a shift away from Republicans more in those suburban counties than we even saw in November? Well, it really all depends on the presence that she, mind you, she has a safe seat, so she could feasibly stay in Congress for many, many years. <laughs> it really all depends on like how much, how big of a presence she becomes within Republican circles and really how, how you know, dominant Trump continues to be over the next few years. Like he's floated running again in 2024. We'll see if that um, materializes, but um, it really, because he's really, Trump has really been like the driving force of the trends that we've seen in counties like Gwinnett, counties like Cobb and Henry. So if he continues to play a large presence in our you know, politics going forward, then maybe we could continue to see these kinds of shifts um, for the next few years. But in regards to um, Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, someone put this very well the other day and they were actually, they actually made a really good point. Marjorie Taylor Greene is the type of voter that Republican politicians are supposed to appeal to. They don't expect those types of voters to run for office. So um, that's pretty much the way a friend put it the other day. And they made a really good point. Like she, like you don't see candidates like her run for office all the time. It's really, 
it's really it's not every day that you see candidates like her, you know, win Republican primaries. That doesn't happen often. And the fact that the Republican Party leadership really didn't play much of a role in that Republican primary, I think that kind of speaks to the um, how, unfortunately, how mainstream conspiracy theories have become in our politics. It's unfortunate, but I know it's. Yeah, I mean, I don't think you're wrong on that. I mean, I I know I voiced my frustration when we were holding our uh, runoffs live stream back in August when we were finishing up the, when they were have finishing off the runoff primaries. I voiced my frustration uh, with Republican leadership. I've seen many of my others, uh, fellow younger Republicans, uh, exhale frustration with uh, leadership in that time period uh, when they did not really get involved in that primary. Uh, yeah, I'm just, just going to say that um, Steve, uh, Steve Scalise was the only member of Republican yeah, leadership who we, we had we had people calling for McCarthy's head after this. I mean, we we had people openly asking online that Scalise should challenge McCarthy. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, I think that is something that would have happened if we had seen the blue wave that we all thought we were going to see potentially. In yeah, November. that didn't happen. Obviously, you cannot kick even even though I don't like the guy as much. You can't. You, I even I have to say you can't kick him out. Uh, yeah, after you see a double-digit seat gain, you can't kick him out. That's just a, a near impossibility to do. So we're kind of dealt with the hand that we've got right here. But we're going to move on to something I think people are going to find interesting. Uh, there's been talk, in my opinion, or at least not enough of it, in my opinion, about the possibility of a split result. Because obviously we've got two races here, and we've got one with kind of the 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 more establishment catered one. We have. Uh, David Perdue, a lifelong political interest, part of a Georgia specialty. Uh, he is the incumbent senator. We've got John Ossoff, who has connections to uh, now deceased John Lewis, who was a behemoth of a congressman in Georgia for decades. And then you have the other race, which it's a businesswoman who was appointed by Brian Kemp, uh, Kelly Leffler to be a senator, who had donated millions upon millions of dollars to his campaign. And then you have the pastor, Raphael Warnock, kind of the outsider versus the insider, uh, excuse me, outsider of the outsider and the insider of the insider in these Senate races. Uh, Purdue only didn't miss the runoff, uh, missed that cutoff to avoid a runoff by only a couple thousand of votes. Mm -hmm. uh, there's been talk about this all the time. Do you think that there is potential for a split result tomorrow night in these Senate races in which I think the most uh, likely split, I think, for many people will be that would be Purdue-Warnock. Uh, do, do you think that split is possible? You've been, you live in the area, you're on the ground. Uh, do, do you think that split is possible? I don't. And here's why. Because we've really seen, um, since about August or September, we've seen both Ossoff and Warnock kind of running as like a unity ticket. And the same thing, you know, ever since she made the runoff, this, we've really seen the same thing with um, Purdue and Leffler. They like, you know, both parties are kind of, you know, both sets of candidates are kind of like running in tandem with each other, um, running as tickets. So um, I really don't think that they, that we will see a split result because I think voters are well aware that it's kind of, you're kind of getting like a package deal with both sets of candidates. And we live in an era of um, hyper-partisanship ticket, you know, low ticket splitting. Like, I don't really think we're going to see a split result like because you know in the um presidential election we only saw um we only saw but like somewhere around like a dozen or so congressional districts split their results for house and 
presidents. That's a, and that's a record low. Um, like in twenty in two thousand eight, like there were like a lot of of Obama. Of Obama. I believe it was. I believe it was over eighty. I believe it was over eighty congressional districts in two thousand eight. Yeah, so, exactly, exactly. Uh, this, either Obama, re, Obama Republican or Democrat uh, Republican. In those yeah. Yeah, and we're not. We didn't see a lot of those this time. Like you know, I don't. I really don't know how many, um, how many uh, Trump Democratic districts there were, but there were nine Biden Republican districts. That's a record low. Like, <laughs> I don't. And for that reason alone, I don't think we're going to see much ticket splitting in these races because um, we've really seen um, a decline in ticket splitting over the last um, over the last few years. And even to use the Senate as an example, only one state has split its results for Maine for um, Senate and president over the ever since 2016. And that's Maine. And, you know, Susan Collins is kind of an institution in Maine. And, you know, she's really the only perhaps the only politician who could still pull something like that off. But, um, yeah, I really don't think we're going to see much ticket splitting tomorrow because, you know, both parties, both sets of candidates are running together. Um, they've you know, campaign together, done TV ads together, like um, Republicans, um, Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue, they both did an ad with Herschel Walker a few weeks ago. Um, and Warnock and Ossoff, they did an ad with um, President-elect Joe Biden. So both sets of candidates. Sorry about that. Anyway, um, yeah, I was just saying both sets of candidates are running together. So I think we um, I don't really think we're going to see many. We're, we're, going, we're not going to see many split tickets because, you know, we live in an era of hyper partisanship and both sets of candidates are kind of running together to kind of offset any potential you know, ticket splitting that we may see. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's going to be something that's really interesting to see, of course. And you mentioned up ads, though. Uh, I've seen you. Uh, you have, of course, a huge presence online. Uh, you, you, one of the most followed uh, analysts when it comes to stuff like this. Uh, you are, of course, a major Democrat. That's why I had you on. I wanted <laughs> to kind of get this perspective from you. Uh, obviously, you have you have called out uh, David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler. Uh, Kelly Loeffler, especially since he is running against Raphael Warnock, who is a black uh, man, black male. Uh, for kind of going into this race, seeping into racial tensions uh, in her hats. I mean, I kind of can, can you kind of at least explain to your viewers, you know, why you think some of Miss Leffler, Senator Leffler's ads are racist? I just want to kind of, I just want to hear why you think they are racist and why they've, they, you, you think that, you know, she's kind of playing in this game here where she's kind of delving into that territory. Yeah, well, first, let's start off with a little backstory about Senator Leffler. Like, she used, well, I don't, she, co-owned Atlanta's WNBA team, women's basketball team. And the WNBA has a lot of black female players. So, um, and you saw most of them um, right after Leffler kind of delved into this Black Lives Matter is a Marxist organization kind of rhetoric. Like you saw most of them walking onto the court wearing Vote Warnock t-shirts. So um, that kind of gives you an idea of how her players view her and her views. But um, in regards to her ads about uh, about Raphael Warnock, I do think that like, you know, she is running a pretty racially charged campaign. She um, has like, you know, she and Republicans have been saying that um, 
Reverend Warnock is the most radical candidate in Georgia history when we have had segregationists as our senators. We've had, um, you know, some pretty racist senators in the past. So I don't think um, Warnock is the, by any means, I don't think he's the most radical candidate in Georgia history. And she's making it, in my opinion, I think she's making it pretty widely known that her opponent is an African-American male without saying it out loud. Like, you know, she's called him things like a Marxist, a radical, things like that. Like a lot of buzzwords that you would hear in Republican circles about candidates of color. It's pretty, um, it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate, but um, I want to say it's surprising, but I really can't say that it is. Okay. And I want to, I want to hear this about this because it was kind of discussed especially in the summertime that maybe maybe these candidates really weren't the strongest and i see someone brought up in the comments cynthia mckinney <laughs> was a part of georgia politics for a while she if you want to talk about another radical maybe on the other side of things she certainly is an option right there yeah <laughs> uh, but uh both of both of these candidates when when we were talking about discussion in the summertime were kind of seen maybe not as strong as we thought they were there were especially a lot of questions about warnock in the summertime especially in the early summertime around uh June and July, uh, a lot of questions about whether he could even beat Matt Bieberman to that second runoff, or whether maybe Democrats are splitting too much of their vote where he wasn't showing himself up on that, and then Republicans are going to get in here with a Leffler-Collins runoff, which mm -hmm. would have certainly been interesting to see if that was going on right now. Maybe, I don't think we'd probably be talking about Georgia as much right now uh, if that had yeah. happened. Uh, clearly it didn't. Uh, are you surprised by how strong either what I kind of both of these uh, the the races that both these candidates have run? Are you really surprised by either of them? Uh, I know I know you voted Warnock. Uh, if you're willing to tell us, I don't know how you voted in the uh, June primary. Uh, whether you voted for Ossoff, I know you like uh, Teresa Tomlinson uh, quite a lot too. So are you surprised really that you know one or even both these candidates have kind of turned into made these races really 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 close? Uh, and really what if we saw maybe a candidate like only like Joe Biden could make a state like Georgia close? Well, to answer your question in the June primary, I did end up voting for John Ossoff. But um, I will say that in a way, like, you know, early on, I wasn't enthusiastic about our ch about Democrats chances in both of these races. But um, I will say in a way, Ossoff and Warnock are both were both kind of tailor made for this moment like in a you know and you know amidst a conversation about racial justice social justice like you know one of the candidates is the black pastor of the church where martin luther king jr first started preaching many years ago so and then in an era where young people are being hit very hard by the pandemic in terms of like you know school and work and things like that like you know the other candidate is a young Jewish man. So it's kind of, in a way, both of them were kind of, um, in, early on, I wasn't as enthusiastic about Democrats' chances in these races, but both Ossoff and Warnock seem to have, you know, kind of realized that they are running at a very, very historic time for our country. Um, like I said, like, you, know, you have a conversation about racial justice and you have young people being hit especially hard by the pandemic and its economic impacts and you know ossoff if he were to win would be the first millennial senator in u.s history and i think that would be kind of symbolic in terms of like you know young people getting hit very hard by the pandemic like it would be nice if they you know had a voice in the senate it would be interesting and 
for um, Warnock, he would be Georgia's, obviously he would be Georgia's first black senator. Um, that would be pretty symbolic given what we saw um, a few, you know, la early last year with the tragic um, murder of Ahmaud Arbery. Um, both of the men who killed him are still facing facing trial, but um, it would be kind of, it would be symbolic if both of them were to win, simply because like, you know, we're in very interesting time for this country. So yes, early on, I was not as enthusiastic about Democrats' chances, but both have, um, not only are they raising record amounts of money, they have both proven to, um, they have both realized that they are running at a, um, that they are special candidates for a special time, essentially. Yeah, I mean, but you you can't you can't even say that maybe you're at least you know a little bit surprised about John Ossoff. I mean, this is a guy that everyone had kind of written off that we didn't really think we'd see in 2020. Uh, he had lost that 2017 special in the sixth district to Karen Handel. Uh, we kind of thought he was done. His 2020 announcement kind of came as a surprise. He did obviously get the big John Lewis endorsement uh, right off the bat, which was pretty big in him being able to not be forced to run off against Teresa Tomlinson. Uh, in that Senate primary, uh, you know, it's just, I mean, it, what it seems like an impeccable rise. Maybe that's just kind of been what is the momentum. I know, I know, we don't always like using that word when it comes to elections, but the momentum for Ossoff just seems to have been carrying him and carrying him. Uh, yeah, I was, I, I was, I was at um, the president-elect Joe Biden's rally today with um, Ossoff and Warnock, and I and Ossoff. He drew, I'd say other than Biden, he drew the loudest applause of all of the speakers, even more so than Warnock. So Ossoff, I don't know, <laughs> like I've, I've followed him ever since his campaign for Congress in 2017. And I can tell you that the John Ossoff now is much different from the John Ossoff from 2017. I don't know what changed. Maybe it's just, like I said, these historic times, these tragic circumstances that we're going through with COVID and racial justice and things like that. But he's just, he's changed. Like, you know, he's a better speaker. And like, you know, even in 2017, 2017, he really wasn't going after Handel, Karen Handel, as hard as he's going after David Perdue. Like, you know, he's attacked David Perdue by name several times in his stump speeches and his TV ads. And he really didn't do any of that with Karen Handel in 2017. I've told this to a bunch of other people, but my theory is that he was caught off guard by the national attention that the 2017 race received. And he didn't know how to handle it being a first time candidate. And now that he knows what that's like, now that we are um, in the midst of among other things, COVID and like, you know, this, you know, a president who is refusing to um, concede defeat, several, you know, just several factors coming together to um, kind of, you know, boost him. And then you also have to give it to um, his digital team. Like he has probably one of the best digital teams of any candidate that I've ever seen. Like, you know, we can, you know, we can talk about how annoying TikTok is, but that works with young people. Young people use those kinds of things. And, you know, he's probably he probably has the best digital team that I've seen, only second to um, Ed Markey, which, we, you know, what we saw in the Massachusetts primary a few months ago. Like, um, obviously, Ed, Ed Markey is like uh, John Ossoff is like less than half Markey's age. So <laughs> that helps. So yeah. um, <laughs> that helps being like, you know, younger and you know, knowing what young people 
knowing what you know knowing what young people do and things like that so i think that kind of helps like you know his age is definitely a huge factor in the way he appeals to young voters yeah and you know we're, we're going to go into the final two questions here but uh my first question here uh, we're down into the final 12 hours really uh less than 12 hours until polls until polls open in georgia tomorrow about less than 12 hours away now until the election day vote can turn out do you think that anything i mean obviously donald trump's rally starts only about 24 minutes uh, but do you think what, if anything, could maybe be a, a shift during this race in the next 12 hours? Or do you think, have people decided at this point when they're going to vote, have they decided they're going to go vote? And what we see tonight, what we what people are thinking tonight is what we're going to see in the results tomorrow. Well, for um, Democratic voters anyway, or Democratic-leaning voters, most of them have already voted. Like right now, turnout is at 3 million votes, over 3 million votes. That's a record for a runoff election. It's like, you know, it well surpasses, uh, you know, the last time Georgia had a U.S. Senate runoff was in 2008. At that time, in that runoff, um, 2.1 million people turned out. And we're already well past that now. Like, you know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me if turnout was like double that this time. So <laughs> it's um, <laughs> it's crazy. But um, most voters, for the most part, have already made up their minds. They already know who they're going to vote for. They've already voted. Um, like, and you have to um, you have to give it to the Democrats for running a really robust early vote operation. Like, like you know, three million votes, regardless of who those three million voters may have voted for. Those 3 million votes are 3 million votes that can't be changed. So those votes are already baked in. Like, you know, it's all about, you know, whatever turnout that, you know, we see tomorrow that ultimately decides this. And I do expect the election day vote to lean Republican as we have seen in November. Like I, I looked at it in 20, um, back in, you know, back late last year, um, early voting, um, in-person in election day voting in Georgia was like, um, it was overwhelmingly for Trump. It was overwhelmingly for Trump. So, and it did make up a smaller share of the electorate than mail-in voting and absentee voting. And that's about what I expect this time as well. Um, how big, um, how big of a share it makes up will determine whether or not Republicans can offset any potential Democratic gains in early and mail-in voting. But I really don't think there are going to be many um, late late events that could persuade a few voters. Like, because this is, like I said, this is a base turnout election. And um, we will see what um, President Trump says at his rally tonight. But I do think that um, his rally is the only purpose it serves is to motivate those rural voters who have who may not have voted yet or are still on the fence about voting because the election is rigged. That's why the messaging in his runoff in, in his rally tonight will be so critical. Like you can't is he going to say that the election is rigged and that you should still vote anyway? Or is he going to spend most of the time? airing his grievances as we have seen him do at rallies in the past. But um, we'll see what happens. It'll be an interesting next um, 24 hours. So <laughs> we'll see what happens. It's going to be a whirlwind. Yeah, absolutely, for sure. But uh, one final question. I want to see if I can bring this out you tonight. I want you to give our viewers and our listeners, because we're going to put this up tonight. It'll be on Spotify. It'll be on Apple Podcasts. People can listen to us if they want to listen to 45 minutes of us talking for some reason. Uh, <laughs> you know... I want to give this from you. 
What is your final predictions for tomorrow night? Both races. I want margins. I want your winners. I want. <laughs> I, I want to hear it from you, man. Come on, give it to me here. Um. Well, the only firm prediction that I say I would have right now is that both races end up breaking for the same party. In terms of who I think has the advantage heading into tomorrow, I would say that it's the Democrats because of the early voting numbers that we've seen because of President Trump's mixed messaging. Um, we will see if his, um, it, it remains to be seen if his rally tonight will um, drive up the rural turnout that Republicans will need. Um, but I will say that going into this, going into tomorrow night, I do think Democrats have the advantage, but it you know all comes down to election day turnout. And we know, we really won't know what that looks like until this time tomorrow. Well, you know what? You're right. We're, we're going to see by this time tomorrow. The polls will have closed by this point, and I'm going to plug it here now. Folks, if you're watching, we will have live coverage here on Elections Daily, starting with a preview of the regions at 7 o'clock with Harrison Laval and Eric Cunningham. Me and Kraz Grinitz will also eventually be on as we begin our final coverage from 2020 in 2021 <laughs> uh, as we cover the Georgia runoffs here on Elections Daily for all you tomorrow night. But I want to give a huge, huge thank you to Niles Francis uh, for coming on with me tonight. On uh, we wish we wish we were able to get a debate tonight uh, with someone else. We we are obviously weren't able to, but I'm glad we were able to hear you talk. Uh, hopefully, we'll be able to get you on sometime here soon. We'll be able to get you in a real debate here on Tough Talk. Uh, <laughs> I want to still thank you though, and uh, have a good luck tomorrow night, and uh, hope everything goes well. Yeah, it's going to be a whirlwind over the next 24 hours. So. Just keep me in your prayers, everybody. <laughs> Again, right, talk to you later. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Have a great rest of your evening, and thank you all for listening. This has been Joe Szymanski with Elections Daily with Tough Talk. We will see you back here on Thursday night with a rundown of what happens tomorrow night.